following show first aired on KZYX, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond, in August of 2023. You are listening to KZYX Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, a listener-supported community radio. Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I am your host, Chad Swimmer. Today we are going to talk with Matt Simmons of the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt about the United States Forest Service's giant projected project, the R5 Hazard Tree Removal Project, a plan to log over 417,000 acres in California. We are also going to take a short journey into the land of entomology with a look into the lives of the white-lined sphinx moth, a truly amazing little creature that's been seen all over Northern California recently and has been called by many, including myself, the hummingbird moth, even though that's not exactly what it is. Before that, though, let's go back to Gene Parsons playing Banjo Dog. Today on the Ecology Hour, we are going to speak with Matt Simmons, JD of EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt, about the U.S. Forest Service massive R5 hazard tree removal project, which at 417,000 acres is going to be the largest logging project in California history if it moves forward. Matt Simmons is the staff attorney at EPIC and should be familiar to our listeners. His tireless work has been crucial in pushing the state of California to the table on tribal co-management issues in Mendocino County. He, in my opinion, wrote the linchpin documents in stopping the Little North Fork of Big River and Mitchell Creek timber harvest plans, two of the most contentious THPs in Jackson State in recent years. He's worked on many other environmental issues across the North State and is now trying to inform the public about this egregious project masquerading as an appropriate response to wildfire. Matt, thank you for taking the time to join us today. How are you? I'm I'm well, and thank you for having me, and, and thank you for that uh, very nice introduction. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. You deserve all of it, and I really am happy to have you back on the show. Can you tell us about this R5 project? Yeah, so R5 uh, stands for Region 5, and for folks who don't know, that's the region of the uh, National Forest System that we are in here in California. Um, and so as I'm sure everyone's aware, over the couple last couple of years, we've had a lot of large fires. Um, fire is a perfectly natural part of California's ecosystems. I want to stress that, you know, up front. Um, but unlike in the past where the Forest Service was able to contain these fires relatively quickly, in recent years, you know, we've seen them get bigger and bigger and grow larger than the Forest Service uh, would like to see them. So after a fire... Uh, some trees die. That's that's a perfectly natural thing that happens after a fire. Um, the Forest Service refers to these as fire-killed trees. I don't love that terminology because it, um, I don't know, it makes it sound like it was like a murder scene or something, like something unexpected that you wouldn't expect to see happen. Uh, but these trees, you know, they can stay standing for a couple of years uh, as snags, and then some of them fall over, some of them never fall over, some of them actually aren't actually dead. They look dead, they look burned, but they come back, roaring back to life. Um, and so for the Forest Service, this creates a problem. Uh, to them, every burned tree is a potential hazard. You know, they're worried about the tree falling and hitting someone or someone's car or blocking a road. And so they have a responsibility to make sure that all of the people visiting our national forests are safe when they do so. And so the R5 or the Region 5 Hazard Tree Removal Project is their answer to that problem. And we have a lot of issues with it, but I'll, I'll give you the sort of overview of what it is first. Essentially what the Forest Service has proposed is a blank check to cut any tree down within 300 uh, feet of either side of the, any road in any national forest in California. If they think it needs to be cut down, they can cut it down. That is what the Forest Service is asking for with this project. Um, so just to give you a sense, in a, you know, a severely burned area, this would look like a 600-foot wide clear cut, right? Because they'd be cutting every tree down 
300 feet on either side of the road. Now, the Forest Service will tell you that they are not going to cut every tree down on either side of the road, and that's true. They have guidelines on which trees they will cut down and which trees they won't cut down. Um, the guidelines are slightly different in different places, but to kind of summarize, they're going to make an estimate estimation of how likely the tree is to die and also an estimation of how likely the tree is to hit the road. Um, so the Forest Service considers any tree that is, uh, let me make sure I'm getting the math right here, any tree that if you multiply the height of the tree by 1.5, if that would touch the road, if it fell straight towards the road, they consider that a potential hazard. Uh, and then they also consider any tree, in some parts of the project, it's a 60% chance of dying. In other parts of the project, it's a 70% chance of dying. So if, if a tree meets both of those uh, criteria, it's a hazard, and the Forest Service would cut it down, sell it. This is a commercial logging project. Uh, they're not going to leave the the down debris on the forest to try to you know keep it in a more natural state. They're going to drag it off and sell it to a timber company. Um, and you know, try to make back some of the money that they're going to be spending on this absolutely massive project. Um, you know, Epic totally understands that there are legitimate hazards in our forests after a fire, right? Particularly on evacuation routes or on roads that people need to get to, to their homes, right? You know, ingress, egress routes or on super popular, you know, hiking or camping areas, right? That, you know, we want to make sure these places open back up after a fire. The Forest Service is not focusing on just those areas. They propose this for every road in the forest system, even level one and level two maintenance roads that you can't even access without, you know, a lifted truck that, you know, can go over really difficult areas. Um, and so, you know, we had a conversation uh, with the Forest Service. We commented on the project. We submitted an objection and we tried to convince them you know, to do less, to, to focus on the areas that needed it the most, uh, to make sure that they were doing proper environmental analysis around sensitive areas, you know, like northern spotted owl habitat, riparian streams. And we were just sort of totally rebuffed. Uh, and I can get into sort of more of the details of, you know, the legal side of things. Um, but this has culminated in Epic and some of our allies filing a lawsuit uh, to try to stop this project from moving forward. Thank you. I have a lot of thoughts, but one is just a memory of a couple of years ago, I was traveling through Oregon through a, a burnt area and U.S. Forest Service project of hazard tree removal. It was uh, it was in the McKenzie River Valley and traffic was backed up on a busy summer week for 45 minutes to an hour in both directions. And it looked pretty clearly that they were doing a clear cut for a long way along both sides of the road. And in some places it was obviously necessary, but other places I I was surprised. And giant ponderosa pines were being taken out and it looked like a profitable timber harvest operation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think, I think calling it a timber sale is important because that's, that's a part of this project, right? It's something, it's a choice that the forest service is making to sell the timber instead of leaving it in the forest um, as, you know, potential habitat or something. Right. And, you know, I, an individual person on the ground, you know, choosing whether or not to mark trees is going to be influenced by whether or not those trees are being sold. That's how I'll put it. Mm -hmm. And what is the extent of this plan? Yeah. So it's pretty massive. I, I actually have trouble sort of wrapping my head around it because uh, it's just, it's, it's so incredibly large. It's every road in California that is in the national forest system is, is eligible. Uh, let me pull up the, the exact numbers for you. The total road miles within the project would be 2,708 miles mm -hmm. of roads. So that's enough to drive, you know, from the West coast to the East coast of the United States. That's how much, that's how much road we're talking about. And some of the way back. Um, and if you, consider that it's, you know, up to 300 feet on either side of every road, that's a total potential acreage of 187,000. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and then that's just in our northern section, the, the two numbers I just gave you. But they're also doing this, you know, in Southern California and the Sierra as well. We're, we're sort of focused on, you know, Humboldt, Mendocino, Del Norte, 
the, the northern areas. But um, this is not just happening up here. It's also happening statewide. And so this is all of the national forests in California? Yeah. That is really hard to respond to from the public yeah. view. Yeah. Um, and you would think with such a novel and enormous project uh, that the Forest Service would do as much environmental review as possible uh, because they're sort of asking for more than they've ever asked for before. But they actually did the minimal amount. Um, so under NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, there's a couple of steps. First, you do an environmental analysis to see whether or not a project will have an environmental impact. And then once you do that, you're supposed to do an environmental impact statement to describe the environmental impact. In this case, the Forest Service did an EA, an environmental analysis, and then they said, oh, no environmental impact. We're going to do what's called a FONSI, or a finding of no significant impact, and just stop considering the, the harms of this project. And so the idea that you would do an EA, which is supposed to be for sort of minor, not very uh controversial or harmful projects on a project that is the largest timber sale in California history uh, is pretty ridiculous. And I honestly, this sort of stems from the Trump administration, actually, which from on high directed the Forest Service no longer to do EISs for, for logging projects. Um, and, you know, even though this project was developed uh partly during the Trump administration, partly during the Biden administration, that sort of older directive seems to have, uh, you know, stayed in play. Well, there's, there are a few things I'm, I'm wondering about. And one is that we're, we've been fighting timber harvest plans within state author, state authority areas. And I'm wondering what does say in a unit in a national forest, what is the process? Is there a timber harvest plan submitted to who? And does the state have any say at all? Yeah, so this, the state really does not have much of a say. It's, you know, uh, this is a whole other can of worms, but California has a lot of federal lands uh, that are not controlled by the state. They're controlled by the federal government, uh, you know, Joe Biden, Washington, D.C. Um, this is not they're not calling it, you know, a, a timber project. They're calling it a hazard tree removal project. But it it is a, you know, it's sort of like actually like JDSF and Cal Fire, right? Like the Forest Service manages the forest. They propose a project and then they review it to see if it's a good idea or not. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny because in Cal Fire and JDSF, that's a very unique situation. It's not like that for other private forests in California, but with the Federal Forest Service lands, that's actually the sort of typical way things go. Mm -hmm. And does the review happen within the individual national forest or does it? So if you, for instance, have a more conservative administration in one national forest, are you going to be submitting it within that administration or to something that governs more than one national forest? Yeah, it, it, it gets pushed up the chain, essentially. Like, they'll do an internal review locally, and then that gets approved above them. This project, you know, they grouped they grouped the forest into three categories, sort of a northern, a Sierra, and a southern. Uh, and so we're mostly focused on the northern, and that was, you know, reviewed partly in the Arcata field office and partly in the Reading field office of the um, Forest Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like with the increased wildfire, it's it's almost like a boom for the timber industry and in that they can get a lot and not have to go through their due diligence. And this yeah, is yeah. And, and this is sort of at the heart of the problem with the idea of salvage logging or post-fire logging. You know, the NEPA regs specifically carve out a categorical exclusion or CE, this is where you basically by law can say, I'm allowed to do this without any review. The NEPA regs have a 250 acre categorical exclusion for salvage logging. So if there's a fire, the Forest Service can just log 250 acres without doing any environmental review by right, by law. Obviously this is a lot more than that. The total project is 400,000 acres. The Northern California portion is 190 something acres, um, 190,000 something acres. But, you know, that, that 
basic idea of, oh, it's already burned already. It's not that big of a deal is still at the heart of the analysis here. Um, and is, I think, both wrong, but then also sort of deeply troubling uh, because it, you know, it allows them to get away with more, like you're saying. You know, it's it's a it's an easier uh, argument for the Forest Service to make. You are listening to the Ecology Hour. I am your host, Chad Swimmer, and we are talking to Matt Simmons, the legal counsel of the Environmental Protection Information Center in Arcata, California, about the United States Forest Service's giant timber harvest project, the R5 Hazard Tree Removal Project that is going to cover the whole state of California, every national forest. Mm -hmm. The idea also that it's already burned is a really controversial statement because it's, you know, so much research in the last many years has shown that these burned areas are really high in value for biodiversity. And it's, it's a stage in the successions where numerous species only exist. And then they sometimes move on hoping for another fire. And yeah, more trees that are rotting away. Yeah, no, and I could I could go into, you know, obviously like everyone thinks of like woodpecker, right? But there's recent research that says northern spotted owls actually do well in a burn area because they can forage better. Um, elk and deer do really well. And then not just immediately after a fire, but if you think about what a mature sort of old growth forest looks like, you'll see dead burn trees. <laughs> lying on the ground in that forest from, you know, decades ago, because that's part of what builds a, you know, mature natural forest, right? And so if you go in and clear all that out every time there's a fire, you're never actually going to get back to um, the sort of mature old growth forest that we, you know, tragically um, have destroyed in so much of our, of our state. Mm -hmm. What is the essence of your, your litigation? Yeah, uh, so Epic and our allies have filed a NEPA complaint. Um, NEPA is the bedrock of uh, federal environmental law. It works very similarly to CEQA uh, for folks who are familiar with California and how our state process works. Um, you know, we make comments, we explain our problems with the project, we explain what they did wrong in not, in not doing environmental review, uh, and they have to respond to those comments, and then we can file a lawsuit saying that you know they needed to uh, change their project. Um, we've you know focused in on you know their inability to consider alternatives. That's a that's a huge sort of pillar of NEPA that that when you're considering a project, you should think about multiple different projects. And they really didn't do that here. They did the project, and they did a no project alternative. We were pushing them to do a a less intense project, right? To to focus on the highest priority roads, to focus on you know high use camping areas and and those sorts of places. And we told them, you know, if you do it that way, no one will have any problem with it. You'll get it done quicker. You can actually increase people's safety sooner. Uh, and the Forest Service just didn't listen to us. And so that's that's one of our arguments. There's a cumulative impacts argument, you know, um, this is the idea that, you know, you should consider the impacts of all the other things that you've been doing on the forest, you know, all the other projects and the future projects that will come and, and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're highlighting a couple of impacts to endangered species, particularly northern spotted owl, um, which is really not doing well uh, anyway, uh, but is just going to be even more harmed by this massive amount of logging happening within its range. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful about the project. You know, the, the, the tug of war whenever we're dealing with the forest service on this sort of thing is I get really frustrated when they skip steps, when they cheat, when they try to do just the environmental analysis instead of doing a full environmental impact statement. But at the same time, it gives us more leverage because the more they try to, skip the rules uh, and get away with stuff, the more sympathetic a judge will be to our case. Um, and so I think, you know, it's pretty clear that the Forest Service violated the law here and that will be uh, successful. And this is a really important point because uh, you know, a lot of us know or we forget that you can't litigate on something being ethically right or wrong because that's a subjective thing. You can only litigate if there's a procedural error. 
really. Yeah, and that's that's particularly true with NEPA. CEQA at least has a a mitigation requirement where you're supposed to uh, mitigate the harms that you're approving, or at least explain why you can't. NEPA doesn't have that requirement at all, and so there is no within NEPA there is no you know you cannot do X. It's you have to explain what X will do and do it well enough that the public can understand. Uh, and they have not done that here. Mm-hmm. What can the public do? Um, well, their public comment period is over. Uh, follow Epic to keep up to date on all open public comment periods in the future. We we definitely sent out an action alert about this. This is really um, important. Go to wildcalifornia.org. Follow yeah. Epic. Yeah, you can sign up for our newsletter. We let folks know when projects like this are proposed. We read them for you and let you know what uh, they say and what we how we feel about it. Um, it's if you're interested in this kind of thing, it's a good way to stay informed. Um, yeah, what can the public do now? I, I, you know, at the risk of self promoting too much, you can donate to Epic and the other orgs that are bringing this litigation. Um, you know, you can talk to your own if you have any sort of relationship with your local forest super, forest service uh you know staff or employees you can talk to them about it and say that you heard this huge massive project was happening what's going on um okay we're sort of we're we're sort of past the public participation uh portion of this uh of this project unfortunately yeah and it was somewhat limited in any way but yeah I do yeah. want to say that the public comments, I, I spent many years avoiding making pub- public comments and partly I think out of laziness, but partly because I, it felt daunting and I didn't think it would ever do a thing. But I, I would say that the public comments submitted by us and especially by us, meaning members of the public and the Mendocino coast, but also really well-researched public comments submitted by Matt and Epic were what stalled and ultimately stopped the little north, little north fork of the Big River Timber Harvest Plan. And it gave me a lot of faith that I could actually do something. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that, Chad. That's, that's what I like to hear. Yeah. I think the other thing to think about that is, is it's not just, you know, Enviro's making public comments, right? Like the timber industry makes public comments saying that they should allow more logging, you know, folks who are, are pushing for more of this sort of thing, make public comments. And so you have to make sure your voice is heard so that it can kind of balance out. Mm-hmm. What else is Epic doing right now that we should know? Or something we could sub- submit some comments on? Uh, that's a wonderful question. I think the period just closed, but something that I know we're working on right now is, uh, it has to do with water diversions uh, from the Scott River Basically, farmers are taking too much water out of the rivers. What else is new? Um, and so we have an action alert going on on that issue. Um, we also, if you're following the Jackson, uh, I've written an action alert on the Jackson Demonstration State Forest. And this is comments to the Jackson Advisory Group regarding how much environmental review should happen uh, with the new management plan revisions. So you can go to our website and I think you can still, yeah, you can still submit those comments up until uh, early September. Oh, what else is going on? This is more of a Humboldt County thing, but uh, there's this big offshore wind project going on up here. And we've got uh, comments in on that, uh, both on the, we're, what we're trying to focus on there is, you know, the, the plan is to create a port uh, here in uh, Humboldt Bay, that will be where these offshore wind turbines are assembled. Uh, and so we're pushing to make sure that that port is as green as possible, you know, using zero emission or very low emission vehicles, um, you know, making sure that there's a good project labor agreement in place uh, so that, you know, we get good paying union jobs for people working on this project. And so there's a lot of exciting things going on up here with that. You are listening to the Ecology Hour. I am your host, Chad Swimmer, and we are talking to Matt Simmons, the legal counsel from the Environmental Protection Information Center in Arcata, California, about the Region 5 timber project that the United States Forest Service is proposing for the entire state of California. And we're going to listen to a Gene Parsons improvisational jam recorded live on a foggy morning down at the Camp One Amphitheater in the Redwoods at the Mendocino Woodlands. Thank you. 
<laughs> that was Gene Parsons doing some improv picking at the Camp One Amphitheater at the Mendocino Woodlands. I would like to encourage listeners to go to Epic's website, wildcalifornia.org. And if you look at their blog, you can see what they're up to. If you go to the July 31st posting, Epic and Allies Challenge California's Largest Ever Timber Sale, you can see some background documents that Matt has posted. Very interesting stuff. I also would like to say that coming up, we have a segment on the white line sphinx moth, which is hardly a moth. It's practically a hummingbird in disguise. And I have a video of one that I took two nights ago off my deck if you would like to look at it it's on my instagram feed at the country snowflake check it out these moths are unbelievable and you are listening to me chad swimmer here on kzyx and z listener powered community radio for mendocino county and beyond i would like to tell you about two shows that are decidedly non-political amazing one is one of my favorites when i get around to listening to it at night the treehouse of course you can listen to that on the jukebox this thursday the 17th at 8 p.m W. Dan will not be interviewing an award-winning author of anything important. He will not be speaking with the foremost authority on anything profound. And he would like you to tune into the Treehouse from 8 to 10 p.m. on Thursday for just about anything else. One of my favorite shows for many, many years. Another non-political show I would like to tout for you is Radio Rama, Radio Rama, with my friends James Whiting and Paul Schulman. Alternating Thursday mornings from 10 to noon, they play for you a wide mix of Latin music with a special emphasis on Afro-Cuban and its many permutations. And these two guys have quite a depth of knowledge. Check it out. Radio Rama. And a short moment of salsa with Conjunto Granada, Que Es La Vida. Now let's go back to Matt Simmons for some philosophical musings about fire and the future. Then we'll check out those Sphinx moths. Every year I try to write a blog post mm -hmm. that uh, sort of summarizes Epic's position on fire and, and how do we live with this thing that you know is so um, scary. I mean, we're, we're talking right now shortly after what happened in Maui, right? Which is just absolutely tragic and terrifying. Um, but then it's also natural, right? And it's part of, oh, go ahead. But it may not be natural because I just read that a lot of it's being blamed on abandoned sugar plantations and invasive grasses. Yes. And and so that's that's my point, I guess, is it's it's this combination of natural and also made worse by human uh you know, human development and human um, industries that have made us more susceptible. I, yep. someone, someone once made this point to me and I, I thought it made a ton of sense. It's like on the East coast, you don't like fight a hurricane, right? You, you try to prepare for it, try to make sure everyone has supplies and a safe place to go, but we aren't like out you know, trying to stop hurricanes from forming in the ocean. At least hopefully we aren't doing that. I, I think Trump might have thought it was a good idea, but that's that is the sort of idea I think we need to start moving towards with fire. Um and and also our response after a fire, right? With for example, this project. Is it is it the end of the world if on a very lowly used road, forest service road that just dead ends in the forest somewhere? no hiking trail there, no one's home. If a tree falls on that road and we have to keep the road closed a few more years, is that worth, you know, not doing the environmental destruction of potentially clear cutting 300 feet on each side? I think that's an easy yes. The Forest Service feels differently, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the sort of, you know, question that we have to answer is, is are we, are we assuming we have, that much control over our environment or are we trying to like work within the confines of nature and work with nature? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the forest service has actually improved a lot on a lot of these kinds of issues. You know, if you, you know, everyone remembers like Smokey the bear, right. And all the sort of anti-fire um, propaganda. Um, but it's still, it's still taking a long time for them to sort of catch up and, 
re-embrace, uh, you know, the natural sort of fire ecosystems that we have here in California. Mm-hmm. I have a neighbor who's a old retired logger and he and I just throw ideas at each other. He's terrified of fire. He does not want me to do burn piles or, you know, we, we have almost small prescribed burns in our neighborhood and he just is really afraid of it. And he's, he used to drop big trees and he's, there's no good fire in his opinion. Yeah. For it's not about being a logger. It's just about imbibing that, that drink for so many years that fire is all bad. Yeah. And who knows it's, it's all bad and it's all good. It depends on where you are and what your, what your object is. Yeah. So, so maybe we can talk, and I know this wasn't originally what you wanted to chat about, but let's talk about sort of what, what we can do to live better with fire. Yes. Um, I, I think here, let me pull up because I just wrote this and so I can just read off my, my little script. All right. So very first thing, fire is natural and, and it can definitely be made worse by human actions. Right. But before there were any humans anywhere, right. I'm talking like millions and millions of years ago, there were fires. It's just, it's just part of earth that there is fire. Uh, and I think that is such an important thing to always preface these conversations with, because if you don't start with that assumption and that belief, then it can feel like the sort of alien thing attacking us from from somewhere else, right? But it's not it's not like that, and you can't think of it that way because if you do, it gets you to the wrong sort of conclusions. Um, and then not only is fire natural, fire can be really good. So like, as we were saying, um, you know, it's really important for a lot of species. It creates this habitat that we need. Um, it can restore uh, places that have not gotten enough fire in a long time. Um, and so I, I really, there's been a lot of good um, documentaries made recently. I watched one called Elemental uh, a few months ago that did a great job of showing this. You know, try to embrace that fire is can be helpful. Um, here's the second thing. Uh, putting out a fire just makes the next fire worse, right? Every time you have a fire, you are burning off fuel on the ground, right? And so for decades, what we did was put out every fire as soon as possible. The Forest Service used to have what was called a 10 a.m. rule, right? Which was... If there is a fire on the forest, make sure it is out by 10 a.m. Do whatever you can to make sure it is out by 10 a.m. And so for decades and decades and decades, we put out every fire as soon as possible, and all this fuel built up on the ground. And this was a unnatural amount of fuel on the ground. I like if I can stress that like fire is natural, but the amount of fuel in our forest is not natural. That was caused by us putting out fires. Um, and so now we're getting these fires that are just absolutely massive, high severity fires uh, that are behaving in ways we haven't seen before. And part of the reason for that is our own past actions, right? It's that fear of fire that your neighbor has. It's coming back to bite us uh, because we, we did that for so long. Um, third thing, and I hope this is okay if I can just read off of this. Um, logging is not, the answer to fire. Okay. Um, a meta-analysis of every forest in the country showed that the more logged forests burned more severely than the more conserved forests. And the reason is that when you log, people think of you just taking like the entire tree out of the forest, but that's not actually how it works, right? You leave a lot of slash, you leave a lot of wood on the ground and all of that is just super, super flammable fuel. Um, even projects that are careful about this, you know, where they try to lop and pile and burn afterward are still leaving fuels on the ground that wouldn't be there anyway. And so, you know, the Forest Service has gotten just millions and millions of dollars, sorry, billions of dollars uh, to do logging projects that are supposed to prevent fire. And, you know, I, I could see a little bit of thinning, a little bit of, you know, you know, making sure there's a good 
uh, line to protect families and homes, nearby families and homes, uh, making sense. But just going out in the forest and logging does not make this a better situation. Um, sorry, someone is... Okay. Um, okay, so then the next thing I'll say is uh, that I said part of the problem was our past behavior. The other part of the problem is our other past behavior, which is emitting tons and tons of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, past and current behavior, because climate change is making this problem worse, right? It's causing a ton of drought. It's making everything drier and more likely to burn. Um, and so it's those two, you know, sins of, of humanity, right? That we put out all these fires and that we emitted all this carbon is just creating this inferno. Uh, another problem has to do with where people live. Um, so there's this term called the wildland urban interface. This is the area where, you know, wild or sort of non uh, urban areas bent, uh, start to come together with urban areas. People who live, you know, far from the center of town, surrounded by trees, surrounded by grass. Those areas are more at risk of loss of property and life than someone who lives uh, in the middle of a city. Um, and over the past few decades, we have expanded homes in the wildland urban interface at just a absolutely tremendous rate. Uh, this is, you know, there's a lot of reasons for this. Some people like living not in the middle of a busy uh, downtown area. Also, you know, our zoning laws have just made it incredibly hard to build dense multifamily housing uh, inside of uh, already developed areas or what's called infill housing. Um, and so because we've expanded more and more people into these areas, there are more, more and more people at risk of fire. Uh, and it's actually made the job of firefighters like exponentially harder because they have so many more lives and property that they need to protect and evacuate. Um, and so Epic is a big supporter of limiting expansion into the wildland urban interface uh, and making sure that we aren't putting more and more people at risk um, by doing that. I'm thinking about kind of a philosophical side to fire. And I assume that most of our listeners are, are in reasonably rural or very rural settings in Mendocino, Humboldt, Lake County. And if you haven't been doing burn piles or burning around your property for, for many years, I think you're missing really a great experience. I mean, I think that people used to say that tool use made us human, but there's all kinds of animals that use tools. And I don't, I don't know of any other animals that are using fire. So fire could be the thing that's making us human or one of the things that defines us. And it's, there are numerous uh, prescribed burn associations all over Northern California. And a lot of them don't mind having an extra set of hands when they do a burn. It's an amazing thing to take part in. Just look online and find one and help one of your neighbors. And that's, you know, the responsibility we have out here. I assume most of the people who have moved into the WUIs, the wildland urban interfaces, aren't really aware of how to take care of their property in a fire safe way. And yeah. there's the whole home hardening, but it's, actually trying to make your property something that is more harmonious with what should be here. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you, you said two things there that I just want to emphasize the home hardening is such a huge one. Um, you, you nodded your head when you saw elemental. And so I'm assuming you saw there was that demonstration of the house that was half sort of traditional uh, construction and half home hardened construction. Yes blew cinders at it uh, with a gigantic fan inside of a, um, like a testing site and yeah. half of the house burns down and half the house is still standing. Right. Like we, we have the capability and the technology to build homes that aren't as susceptible to wildfire. Um, and so if, if people are already living in these areas or they're choosing to live in these areas, I think we should absolutely be stressing, you know, you have to do this safely, right? It's it's living out in the country comes with extra extra requirements and extra costs. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I, I totally agree that you know people need to be creating defensible space around the property. You know, burning like you're saying, mini prescribed burns. I sort of like that. 
Um, I went to a talk with, um, she's a, she's a Yurok tribal member who's led a lot of the sort of cultural, uh, talks recently about cultural burning. And she talked about how the traditional Yurok method was to, you know, start at the community at the edge of the village and sort of burn outward from the village. Right. And that way you get this nice sort of pre-burn, uh, away from, it was Margot Robbins, Took me a while, but it was Margot Robbins. Um, yes. And yeah, you, you get this nice burn uh, away from the village. That is the sort of, you know, traditional ecological knowledge that I think we need to be emulating and, uh, you know, reintroducing to this to this land. Mm-hmm. And you could even possibly get some morels out of it. We We live a mile from the coast and one of our burn piles last year yielded morels six months later. For some unknown reason, I don't know where the spores arrive from, but it's um, it's a great conversation, and I'd love to hear more. But I think we got to go to our next short subject. Thank you so much for being with us, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Anytime, if uh, you don't want me to come and rant at you more about something, I'm happy to. That's great, and that's um, from Matt Simmons from Epic up in Arcata, and it's not epic.org, it's wildcalifornia.org. Yeah, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, That is the best way to get info on everything going on uh, in the North Coast with the environment. (laughs) All right. Well, have a great afternoon. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Chad. Take care. That was Matt Simmons of the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt County. Ed, I would like to remind listeners of a show we had a few months back where we spoke to a number of people, including Chad Hansen, about the Friends of Little Bear project dealing with a little piece of cloud forest down in San Bernardino County that Cal Fire had a fuels reduction project that was going on without taking a look at all of the biological treasures in that small piece. This project went to court, and while it wasn't decided in anybody's favor, Cal Fire essentially settled out of court and said the project is done, and within a very short period of time took all of their equipment out, and it seemed like that was the end of it. Well, I heard recently from Steve Serrano my contact down there, and he wanted us to know that the Friends of Little Bear had recently sent a significant protest letter, and I will quote from it. The Save Our Forest Association has been notified that Cal Fire has been carrying out fuels reduction work, including brush removal, tree marking, and tree cutting in the Greenbelt areas. This letter is being written on behalf of the co-litigants of the Endangered Habitats League, the California Chaparral Institute, and the Friends of Little Bear to protest the renewed Cal Fire fuel reduction activity. Given the email of July 26, 22 to our attorney, in which you acknowledge that, quote, this will confirm my representation to you that Cal Fire has finished the project and together with, with its equipment is completely off the project property. In view of the project's completion, we agree that a dismissal of the action, all parties to bear their own fees and costs is appropriate. End quote. We suggest in an effort to allow some contractual future vegetation management that there will be coordination with CAL FIRE and event environmental consultants in advance of any vegetation and tree removal to identify bird nesting sites, water courses, and areas of the endangered southern rubber boa habitat to to avoid. This would greatly refine a CAL FIRE action plan to mitigate fire risk while creating more stand species and age diversity. We have read the most recent email, which does go a long way in providing more clarity and transparency about the CAL FIRE's latest efforts. But given the significant vegetation and tree removal from this project already, along with an abundant snow and rainfall this past winter, there has been a dramatic increase of invasive grasses, now dry, that create more ground fire conditions. The dismissal of the previous lawsuit should not mean a return to previous fuel reduction practices that were too extreme and inconsistent with the site conditions. We believe strongly in a cooperative approach for the benefit of homeowners, the long-term health of the Greenbelt, and the adjacent San Bernardino Land Trust property, rather than unilateral action by Cal Fire. 
We would appreciate the suspension of all fuel reduction activity until a cooperative meeting has been held to review current site conditions. Sincerely, Hugh A. Bialaki, President, Save Our Forest Association. And we will keep you posted on this as soon as we hear more. I'd like to go now to talk a little bit about this incredible creature that's been swarming all over Northern California, the white-lined sphinx moth. I saw one years and years ago and hadn't seen any until about a week ago, and I've heard that they're being sighted everywhere. They are apparently migratory, that they breed in Southern California and in Mexico and come up here occasionally. Apparently more often than I thought, but they have been so prolific that they elicited a long article in the Independent Coast Observer, the South Mendocino County Coastal Newspaper. This moth is actually a lot like a little teeny hummingbird, and they're often mistaken for hummingbirds. They're mostly seen in the morning and in the evening, and their wings beat even faster than a hummingbird, so they're able to move backwards and hover in the same way. And they, like hummingbirds, are really important pollinators of many plants. Their caterpillars are often mistaken for tomato hornworms, which bear a superficial similarity, but they are not. While they do occasionally decimate a plant, they are generalists. They eat all kinds of plants, and they don't really do any major damage to any crops, except on occasion. They were a very important food source for a number of indigenous people in Southern California and Northern Mexico, as where they breed their often a profusion of caterpillars, which were apparently quite delicious with their heads removed, the guts out, and roasted over hot coals. Sorry if that makes you a little uncomfortable, but hey... As adult moths or hummingbird flies, they eat very little, mostly just the nectar of the plants they visit. In the Independent Coast Observer column, Sightings, there are accounts of over a dozen people talking about them with some really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful things. One person says, Today, my husband spotted this very unusual, new-to-us flying creature in our courtyard. It seemed to be feeding on our blooming dahlias like the hummingbirds do. It flew around very quickly and hovered like a hummingbird, too. At first, we thought it was a baby hummingbird, especially because of its proboscis. One person writes that there were three or four of them right now, zooming around the flowers in her courtyard. The real hummingbirds seemed quite upset with the competition. You're right, I haven't seen so many of them together before. When I took my video, I turned on my camera and a light, and the moth flew straight towards the light to proceed to do its fun business right in front of me. Quite gorgeous. In our yard, we've seen them really frequenting agapanthus and nasturtium. And last night, there were even three doing something of a dance similar to a hummingbird dance. If you do manage to get up close, these are positively stunning creatures. And they actually don't seem much bothered by me at all. As I said before, I have a short video of them on my Instagram account. That is The Country Snowflake. Check out this white line sphinx moth, Hylius lineata, and I hope you get a chance to see one. It is a treat. Finally, I would like to say that I am far from an entomologist, and I consulted a number of people, but I could not find anybody who was an expert at the last minute who wanted to talk about this. And I would like to wrap up the show with a little music from Robbie Robertson, who passed away last week. Robbie Robertson was a big influence in my life, and this song is called Ghost Dance. That was Robbie Robertson, Ghost Dance. I'd like to refer you again to Epic's website, wildcalifornia.org, where you should, if you're interested, get on their alert list, their mailing list, and read the blogs. It's, it's quite interesting, informative, and will let you know what you can do at any one moment to help further the kind of environmental ideals that I think we are all working for. Also, if you look at their post about the R5 Hazard Tree Removal Project, you can see the background documentation. And while you're at it, drop them a donation. They can always use it, and they do fantastic work. And thank you so much for spending the last hour with me, Chad Swimmer, here on the Ecology Hour, based at KZYXNZ, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond. I would like to extend a thank you to Gene Parsons for gifting me with the music that goes with this show, and also to our guests today, Matt Simmons and Epic, for all of their epic work in defense of the environment. 
As always, the views and opinions expressed are those and only those of myself and my guests, and not those of the management or staff of any station that chooses to air this show. This show was produced on Audacity's open source software for sound editing by a small staff in an even smaller studio on the unceded stolen land now known as Casper, California, America. It originally aired on KZYXNC, listener-powered community radio from Mendocino County and beyond. It comes to you via the invisible but carbon-intensive magic of the internet. If you want to share this show with a friend or listen to any of the back episodes of any of my shows, go to www.disquietmedia.blue. If you would like to comment on anything you heard here, email me at cswimmr at gmail.com. See you next time.